0: Oh, uh, look at my African-American over here. Look at him. <laughs> look at him. I knew there had to be one of them out there somewhere. Congratulations, Mr. Well, Trump. I, don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling there's something right. You know I am so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me us to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you Yep Yes, I'm stuck in the middle Boy, howdy, from Pacifica Radio and in Los one Angeles one This is the broadcast, As heard on 90.7 I FM, FM in LA face. 91.7 FM KYAQ on the central coast of Oregon And 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove, Oregon In Pennsylvania 93FM WLRI in Lancaster, in Hawaii on 88.5FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, in Ohio on WGRN 94.1FM Columbus, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, Coast to Coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, Radio Monterey, and other fine affiliates, including Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly, investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining me for the uh, action-packed, thrilling adventure that we always call The Bradcast. Welcome to it, and welcome, uh, Desi Doyen. Welcome, our producer, Desi Doyen. How are you today?
1: I'm okay. I'm cooling off.
0: Cooling off a <laughs> little bit. Not much with this heat wave out here in Southern California, but I just wanted to uh, congratulate you... A lot of people will be shocked to hear this, but uh, Desi, you and I have now joined the 700 Club. <laughs> sort of, kind yeah. of, right? Yeah, you're going to
1: have to explain that one, Really? I think. Do yeah. I? Okay.
0: Yeah, no, not Pat Robertson's 700 Club, but the Green News Report. We have uh, today for you, coming up a little bit later in the program, our 700th episode of the Green News Report. So congratulations, Desi. Going back to 2008? 2009.
1: 2009. Whole lot of green news going Uh, on. So
0: it's been about seven, a little bit over seven years, I think. And uh, clearly you have failed because (laughs) it has gotten hotter and hotter each and every one of those seven years. The climate
1: is still warming. I have failed. You have failed. I, can't, I still don't have my jetpack. I'm waiting for that, too. Waiting
0: for that, too. All have, right. I have
1: failed on that, as well.
0: Fail. Uh, in any event, uh, as this heat wave uh, shatters records across the Southwest, out here in uh, Southern California and in Arizona and so forth, we will bring you our 700th Green News report in a little uh, little while today. Just after we got off the air yesterday... All of that gun legislation, those gun safety uh, 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 amendments that were coming up in the U.S. Senate, thanks to Chris Murphy's 15-hour filibuster last week, he had a filibuster just to bring, just to get a vote on these items. Uh, all four of those uh, pieces of legislation that were brought forward, two by Republicans and two by Democrats, they all failed. They all failed in the U.S. Senate, just as we told you they would. Uh, As CNN describes it, senators couldn't muster enough bipartisan support to pass a series of gun control measures, the latest in a long string of failed attempts at enacting tighter curbs on firearms in the U.S. Spurred by the worst mass shooting in U.S. history... Says CNN. Senators from each party introduced measures they said would have strengthened background checks and prevented suspected terrorists from obtaining weapons. But, and I love this, uh, CNN, but tough election year politics, paired with disputes over the effectiveness of each party's ideas, proved too powerful to break the long standing partisan gridlock that surrounded gun issues for years. Now, it was not tough election year politics. Uh, I don't even know why uh, CNN would describe it that way. New York Times did as well. It was not due to a tough election year politics. It was due to, well, politics and, well, due to the NRA. Uh, this same thing happened last year in December after that mass shooting out here in San Bernardino. It was not an election year. But it still failed. So this has nothing to do with election year politics. As a matter of fact, election year politics arguably make it easier to pass uh, bills like this, given that you had a a couple of Republicans who were in close um, uh, election year battles. uh, Kelly Ayotte in uh, in New Hampshire and Mark Kirk in Illinois, both Republicans who ended up voting with Democrats on a couple of these items. Uh, a, a fifth uh, uh, piece of legislation is, is uh, set to be introduced uh, perhaps as early as today by moderate Republican Senate, uh, Senator Susan Collins. She has uh, uh, that bill has generated somewhat more optimism, according to CNN, but it still faces long odds, you think? Senator Chris Murphy, the Connecticut Democrat who sponsored one of the failed measures, expanding background checks, was angry after his provision was defeated. He said, I'm mortified by today's vote, but I'm not surprised by it. The NRA has a vice-like grip on this place. Indeed, they do. Um, He said, I don't think democracy allows for this Congress to be out of step with the American public for long explaining that he thought uh, perhaps voters would uh, take folks to task this November, and he predicted widespread voter anger in November's congressional contests. I'm somewhat uh, less optimistic about that than he is, because the uh, voters should have and could have been angry about this for years. In fact, Chris Murphy... He was the uh, he was he's a senator. Now he was the congressman back in Newtown, Connecticut, during the Sandy Hook massacre back in what was it? 2012. Yeah, 2012. And the voters haven't exactly taken anyone to task for not acting on gun violence since then. Elizabeth Warren uh, echoed Murphy's sentiment. Um, Well, actually, Murphy said, we've got to make this clear, constant case that Republicans have decided to sell weapons to ISIS. Yep. And Elizabeth Warren echoed that sentiment by saying uh, that uh, Chris Murphy uh, had it right. The Senate GOP have decided to sell weapons to ISIS. Now, there are, I should note, some some points in, in the bills, including in the Democrats' bills on this, that I don't, well, I was going to say I don't necessarily agree with, that I have some concerns about. But given the fact that voting at all on this issue has been so ridiculously, stupidly impossible for so many years, and in most cases, they're not actually even voting on the measures, they're voting on, uh, you know, whether a filibuster will be allowed, they're voting for cloture, which requires 60 Uh, votes, not just a bare majority in the U.S. Senate. So, you know, at some point, if it looks like they're serious about actually doing something uh, concerning guns, maybe we'll talk about the specifics of the legislation and some of the concerns I have. My concern right now is that, uh, by and large, they're not even allowed to vote on it. And even if they do vote on uh, this measure, for example, this uh, Susan Collins measure, Even if they do manage to find a compromise that they can vote on and that passes in the U.S. Senate, the U.S. House has absolutely no interest in voting on anything that has anything to do with guns, yes, despite what is being described— as the worst, US, uh, the worst mass shooting in U.S. history. But, by the way, was that Orlando shooting where more than 100 were shot, 49 were killed, and many more remain in grave condition today? Was that actually the worst mass shooting in U.S. history? My guest, coming up shortly, suggests that's not actually true, or at least it's uh, it's very misleading. We'll talk with Ariella J. Gross in a little bit about some overlooked history concerning mass killings in America. But in the meantime, we all move forward, even as new polling out uh, this week shows that 86% of Americans support denying gun sales to anybody who's on the government's terror watch list. That would include 87% of Republicans. And of course, there's been a whole bunch of polls over the past few years indicating about 90% of Americans favor a background check for every gun sale. What does that tell you about democracy in this country when you've got 90% of Americans who agree on these issues? Uh, These specific, and 90% of Americans don't agree on anything, but they agree on this, and yet even uh, the fight to just get a vote. In both houses of Congress. Continues. It's it's remarkable, but it is also known as American democracy. Speaking of American democracy and stuff that happened right after we went off the air uh, yesterday, uh, the numbers, the uh, FEC Federal Election Commission uh, numbers were released from a number of campaigns and frankly, The Donald Trump numbers are just amazing. I'll let uh, the New York Times uh, cover this first part here. Donald Trump enters the general election campaign laboring under the worst financial and organizational disadvantage of any major party nominee in recent history, placing both his candidacy and his party in political peril. The Times writes that Mr. Trump began with just $1.3 million in cash on hand in his campaign, a figure more typical for a campaign for the House of Representatives than for the White House. $1.3 million cash on hand. He trails Hillary Clinton, who had raised more than $28 million in May, by $41 million, according to reports that were filed uh, late on Monday with the FEC. Donald Trump has a staff of around 70 people, compared to uh, nearly 700 for Hillary Clinton, suggesting only the barest effort toward preparing to contest swing states this fall. And he has fired his campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, on Monday after concerns among allies and donors about his ability to run a competitive race. The Trump campaign has not aired a television advertisement since he effectively secured the nomination in May, has not booked any advertisement for the summer or the fall. Mrs. Clinton and her allies spent nearly $26 million on advertisement in, uh, in June alone. According to the uh, campaign media analysis group, pummeling Mr. Trump in those ads over his temperament, his statements and his mocking of a disabled reporter. The only sustained reply from Trump's uh, uh, jibes at rallies were were from uh, Trump's jibes at rallies and on Twitter and from a pair of groups that have spent less than two million dollars combined. But maybe that's enough. He's still doing very well in the polls. In truth, he's starting to slide. Uh, But that's kind of how he went through the uh, through the primary election as well and dispatched his 17 competitors with not much of an actual real campaign, but just what they call earned media because uh, media loves to show Donald Trump.
1: Yeah, it's that free media. I believe he actually even said uh, in as many words that Mm -hmm. he is planning on not having to buy that many political ads and uh, funding himself basically by the free media. What happens when the corporate media decides, hey, we don't want to do that anymore? I don't think that's going to happen. It's not going to happen. Because the ratings are too good. Well,
0: Well, listen, the ratings are good, and he's now the presumptive nominee. So I, 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 even if, you know, you could argue that they covered him too much in the primaries, now he's going to be the guy. Now he's going to be the nominee, probably, most likely. Things could change in the next couple of weeks before we get to uh, the uh, the convention in Cleveland. But they're going to continue covering him. And he's going to continue saying things that, uh, you know, that make give the media no choice, frankly, but to cover him. In the same month that... Um, Trump clinched the Republican nomination. The Times reports uh, he raised just three point three point one million, just three point one million dollars. He was forced to lend himself two million dollars to meet costs. And uh, they also note that some Trump uh, invitations to Trump fundraising events have featured the same short list of national Republican finance volunteers, regardless of what city that the event is held in. Usually these events will have the the local, you know, the the fundraiser is hosted by uh, this guy and that guy and that woman and so forth. But these don't have any of those names on there. By and large, they're the same national fundraising names, suggesting, as The Times reports, that uh, Trump has had some trouble lining up local co-hosts. You think? Now, Lewandowski, uh, I I don't know if this is before or after he was fired Uh, yesterday. Trump's uh, campaign manager says, we are leaner, meaner, more efficient, more effective, get bigger crowds, get better coverage. If this was the business world, people would be commending Mr. Trump for the way he's run his campaign. Okay. Maybe. They're going with that? All well, I'm right. sure
1: there are a lot of consultants in the political consultant class who are not happy with him.
0: Well, uh, there's a lot of people who are making money from him, uh, particularly him. Donald Trump is paying himself a whole lot of money to run for president. Uh, it, I'll get to some of those numbers in a minute, but uh, it, just one more point from the Times here. Uh, Trump has suggested that he will leave the crucial task of field organization... Uh, in swing states to the Republican National Committee. He's not going to do it. <laughs> well, He's going to let them do it. I
1: bet they're so glad to hear that, and that. They get to carry the bag. And
0: they typically rely on the party's nominee to help fund and direct and staff the uh, uh, national field efforts for the Republican Party. But uh, they can't count on him now. He ain't doing it. On Monday, the party reported raising thirteen million dollars during May. About a third of that money it raised in uh, about a third of the money that it had raised back in May 2012 when Mitt Romney led the ticket. So they're all having all kinds of problems. But when you look at the numbers, the FEC report showed uh, that Trump's campaign that they took in three million dollars in May. That was compared to Hillary Clinton taking in 26.4 million over that same period in May. The campaign, meanwhile, speaking of where this money is going, the money that has come in, the campaign, Trump campaign has paid more than half a million dollars to Trump Tower Commercial, LLC, and the Trump Corporation for rent and utilities. The campaign has also paid $423,000 to Trump's private Mar-a-Lago Club in South Florida for rent and for catering. And an additional one hundred and thirty five thousand dollars in rent and utilities to Trump restaurants, LLC. So whenever you see him holding those events, uh, you know, after primary nights at Mar-a-Lago or up at the Trump Tower, he is paying himself to do that.
1: Which I'm sure then he also gets a tax deduction for as well.
0: No doubt. No doubt. Uh, Trump campaign uh, spent thirty-five over, more than $35,000 at Trump National Golf Club. They spent $29,000 at Trump International Golf Club. All told, he spent uh, $737,000 at Trump-owned businesses in May alone. That is more than twice what the campaign actually spent on payroll during that same period of time. So all told, through the end of May, Trump's campaign has plunged at least $6.2 million back into Trump corporate products and services, according to the uh, FEC filings that Time magazine uh, plowed through, which is just unbelievable. Now, unlike in the uh, primary when uh, Trump touted his ability to pay his own way, I'm self funded. I'm not going to rely on anyone. I'm not going to owe anything to anyone. Well, he's now been on urgent fundraising, trying to raise. Uh, he put out an email just a day or two ago asking for a hundred, he had to raise $100,000 before the FEC deadline. But his campaign began June with just $1.3 million in the bank, compared to $42 million in the bank for, uh, for Hillary Clinton. Uh, Some other numbers here. uh, Jennifer Epstein of Bloomberg notes that Hillary Clinton had three fundraisers on Monday in New York. In all, there was about 135 people who each gave thirty three point four thousand dollars. Now, setting aside how disgusting that is, that she's going to owe some pretty sweet favors to all those people who put in thirty three thousand dollars, setting that aside, Those three fundraisers on Monday uh, raised her some $4.5 million on that one day. That is more than Trump raised in the entire month of May. The Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, they filed their numbers. uh, They raised $16.4 million. They've got $9.2 million cash on hand. They have more than the presumptive GOP nominee, Bernie Sanders. He's got about eight times as much more money in the bank as Trump. Uh, Tanyell over on uh, Twitter noted that Jill Stein, Jill Stein of the Green Party, the uh, presumptive nominee, I think at this point, of the Green Party, she's got $196,000 at the end of May. That is 15% of Trump's total, but it is surely the closest the Green Party has been to parity with either, either major party at this point. Donald Trump had five times less money than Ted Cruz, who dropped out of the race months ago. He had a third less than Ben Carson. Uh, It's just amazing. He spent uh, $208,000 on hats, however, in the month of May. So there's that. That's a good way to spend the money. Uh, uh, finds that Ken Vogel over at Politico. He finds that's six point five percent of the entire sum of money uh, of money that Trump raised in May went to hats to make America great again. Ugly red trucker caps. Uh, th- that's what he is spending on. Now, in in response, in a bit of a Jedi master move here, uh, Donald Trump released a statement on Monday. Uh, calling the uh, May fundraising, quote, incredible. It's just been incredible. Uh, He says that he's just getting started and that he can add unlimited funds himself to the general election campaign if need be. So no reason to worry. Well, maybe there is a reason to worry. Josh Marshall over at TPM has been pointing out for some time that, uh, you know that number, that $10 billion that uh, Donald Trump says he is worth? Yes. Yeah, he's, I'm very rich. I'm very, remember he started off the, I'm I'm terribly rich. Uh, Josh Marshall thinks, not only is he not rich, but he may be damn near broke.
1: Oh my, that would be, that would certainly mix things up a little bit.
0: At least in billionaire terms, that he doesn't have anything like that kind of money. Uh, and he he notes, uh, uh, Josh does over at uh, Talking Point's memo that perhaps the most revealing detail about the May filing is that Trump actually did loan his campaign additional funds, a bit over two million dollars. But this shows more just how hard how hard up Trump is. His campaign is in desperate need of funds. He's, he writes, like I said, $1.3 million cash on hand is stone broke for a summer presidential campaign. He clearly has no principled resistance to loaning his campaign more money. So where is it? And he's in desperate need of a few tens of millions of dollars right now. Put this together with with having to be shamed into coughing up the million dollar contribution, remember, to, uh, to VETS organizations a few weeks ago. And the implication is clear, writes Josh. Uh, Trump is very hard pressed to come up with even a few million dollars in this from a man purportedly worth 10 billion. Trump's promise of vast riches got the GOP into a bind, relying on him to fund a general election on his own. But that, he says, was all a lie. He's broke Or near broke, and the GOP is now facing midsummer with a campaign that is broke, has no fundraising apparatus, no candidate with big bucks, and no field operation. He's done the GOP worse than the most screwed over creditor he has ever sharked, says uh, Josh Marshall at TPM. Uh, But uh, you know what? Uh, Who knows? Maybe he doesn't need all of that money after all. It seems unlikely, but maybe he doesn't. According to uh, a new poll, Democratic uh, candidate Hillary Clinton has a five point lead over Republican Donald Trump in a new CNN ORC poll, a new head to head poll between Clinton and Trump among registered voters, 47 percent say they support Clinton, while 42 say they would, vote, uh, they would vote Trump in a general election matchup. So it's only five points. You would think after all of the nightmares that this guy has been facing for so many months, uh, there would be a much larger gap between Clinton and Trump. And there is a somewhat larger in some of these other polls. This is a national poll. Uh, and uh, it shows, however, a uh, seven-point dip from the poll's last survey for hillary clinton she has lost seven points and uh... meanwhile trump's support has basically held steady uh... so there's that on the national level for those democrats who think they got nothing to worry about now everything's fine uh, and But that's national. We don't have national elections in this country. We, you know, have state, uh, state by state in our electoral college. So looking at the swing states, we have some new polling there. Some good news, but still not quite as good as you would think for Democrats. Hillary Clinton leads Donald Trump by eight points in the key state of Florida, according to uh, a new Quinnipiac University swing state poll. This was just released today in Florida. 47% of voters favored Clinton, while 39% favored Trump. That's very good news for Clinton in Florida. That's a major bump for her since the Quinnipiac poll uh, released back in May that we talked about at the time. Uh, showed her leading uh, Donald Trump by just one point in the state of Florida. So there's some good news. Uh, And Clinton also made some gains on Trump in Ohio and had a slight lead in Pennsylvania. Both are also uh, considered to be key swing states. In Ohio, Clinton tied Trump in the June poll. That's right, she's tied. That represents a boost for her in Ohio. Trump had led Clinton by four points in Quinnipiac's May poll. uh, And uh, I should note, Bernie Sanders beat uh, Donald Trump in uh, all of these uh, swing states in the uh, Quinnipiac's May poll uh, by much more than Hillary Clinton did in any of them. In Pennsylvania, Clinton has just a one-point lead over Donald Trump. That's almost unchanged from what we saw in May with her. When minor party candidates, as uh, as they are described, um, are included in the question, Clinton leads Trump's leads Trump in all three states. So those minor party candidates, as they describe them, Libertarian, Green Party, that seems to help Hillary Clinton. They seem to be taking away votes in general from Donald Trump, for example, among Florida voters, Clinton, 42, Trump, 36. Libertarian candidate uh, Gary Johnson at seven, and Green Party's Jill Stein at three. So in that case, in Florida, she had a a six point lead. In Florida, in Ohio, when the other uh, minority candidates were uh, minority party candidates were added, uh, let's see. In Ohio, she led him uh, by two, and in Pennsylvania, she leads Donald Trump by three with uh, Gary Johnson and Jill Stein polled. All right. Um, anyway, got some more uh, politics I'll try to get to in a little bit um, as time allows. But let's take a quick break and come back with Ariella J. Gross. Was the uh, shooting in Orlando just over a whoa, week ago, we can have lost track of time. Uh, was that, in fact, the worst Shooting, well, The worst mass shooting in U.S. history. Ariella Gross uh, has some thoughts on that. We will share them and her with you right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time only contribution. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Since the horrific massacre at the LGBT Pulse nightclub in Orlando a week or so ago, politicians, the corporate media, and in fact, even me here on the Bradcast uh, have referred to that shooting of more than 100 clubgoers killing some 49 of them as the worst mass shooting to date in the U.S., Writing over at the Wall Street Journal, however, just days after the killing, Ariella Gross wrote that the massacre at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando was a horrific tragedy, but it was not unprecedented and it was not the deadliest mass shooting in American history, as many have called it. Indeed, her piece at the Journal uh, includes a graphic. Of the front page of the now defunct newspaper, the St. Louis, Missouri Republican, from July of 1917, the top headline mob kills many Negroes dead in East St. Louis may reach two hundred and fifty shot fleeing from burning homes. Exact number not known. Gross goes on to write that uh, to call the Orlando massacre the deadliest mass shooting in American history is to forget the last hundred years of U.S. history of mass violence fueled by racial hatred and homophobia. Indeed, that 1917 slaying was hardly the only uh, such killing overlooked by modern U.S. media, including myself. Here to join us now to talk about this is Ariella J. Gross. She is the John B. and Alice R. Sharp Professor of Law and History at the University of South California, where her research and writing focuses on the intersection of law, race, and slavery in the United States. She's also the author of the award-winning book, What Blood Won't Tell? A History of Race on Trial in America. Ariella Gross, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, Good to uh, read your article, actually, to to help sort of put things into uh, some perspective about the homegrown tradition of hatred-inspired shooting and burning that we have here in these United States, as you describe it. I want to talk about some of those incidents, because that was uh, kind of shocking, actually, to see that headline. I'm embarrassed to say I don't know about that 1917 incident, and I'm most embarrassed because I'm actually from... Uh, the other side of the river, I'm from uh, St. Louis, Missouri, uh, but I didn't know about the uh, this mass uh, killing in East St. Louis back in 1917. So let's talk about that. At least 100, you say at least 100 African-Americans were killed in East St. Louis, Illinois, in one bloody night in July 1917. What was that about? What happened there? Yeah. So
2: what happened um, in East St. Louis was not unlike what was happening in cities um, across the north and also um, parts of, you know, kind of border areas between the south and the north where where African Americans were moving in large numbers during and after World War I um, out of the deep south, and they were taking jobs that, White Americans thought of as their job, mm-hmm. and in some places they were even amassing um, some property and wealth. So one of the worst incidents uh, was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, it was you know it's no it was known then as the Tulsa race riot. Historians now refer to it as a massacre because race riot makes it sound as though there's something two sided mm-hmm. <laughs> about it, as opposed to simply the the massacre of, of a single community. but in in the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, um, black Americans had bought property, some of they were shop owners, homeowners, they had a, a pretty successful community that was quite threatening to their white neighbors or that their white neighbors perceived as a threat. And so so many of what became known as race riots at the time were simply, efforts to run black people out of town, to decimate those communities. And um, that's one reason some historians refer to them as racial cleansing, Mm. not unlike the ethnic cleansing that we saw in um, parts of Eastern Europe uh, in the late 20th century, efforts to eliminate a whole population from a city. Mm. Uh, And some of them part of why we don't why you don't know about them if you live in the place is that they were so successful so some areas that are now entirely white were once african american and those people were run out of town so we don't know their history, or their
0: neighbors don't know the history. It's striking that you uh, you cite that uh, that killing in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It happened in 16 hours in June of 1921, and you write that it, it was uh, resulted in anywhere from 55 to 300 blacks being massacred. That's a pretty large uh, number it's to not be rain. known all of these years later. 55. I know. Yeah. It's,
2: it's very difficult um, because uh, so few people's bodies were recovered. And many years later, um, quite recently, there was a, a commission appointed in Tulsa to investigate, to, to recover that history and to think about ways that the city could begin to repair that history. And um, really, uh, they di- have done an amazing job of, of kind of historical recovery. What they haven't been as successful at is getting the permissions and and, uh, what's involved in actually digging up the places where people think there are mass, unmarked graves. So there's uh, good reason to think that most of the people who died in Tulsa were buried in places that are completely unmarked, Mm -hmm. and those bodies, most of the bodies, were never recovered. So uh, the... The commission ended up concluding that there could have been as many as 300 deaths, but without archaeological remains, we don't have the true answer to that. And um, and, and that's one of the, you know, I think the tragedies of uh, some of these uh, massacres, um, yeah. which is... That we don't really know we, exactly how we, many people
0: died. Yeah, it's yeah, that's quite a range, fifty-five to three hundred, and then you write also in Rosewood, Florida, in January of nineteen twenty-three, dozens more were killed, uh, and and you say one of the reasons we don't know is because of the areas were were essentially cleansed via these uh, really pogroms. But I can tell you, uh, having grown up in St. Louis, that East St. Louis is still uh, very very black, very African American. Uh, and so I'm wondering if there's another factor here—the the fact that we don't know uh-huh. about them simply because they involved the mass murders of African Americans, or or is a lot of this also because it has been now so long ago that they have just simply become lost to history? Uh, what do you? How do you see that? Yeah, this? I
2: mean, I I'm struck by the fact. I I think there are a number of complicated reasons for mm-hmm. why the violence and especially the coordinated state-sanctioned violence of the Jim Crow era isn't better known. I think one reason is that uh, we tended to focus on individual, you know, on the, the uh, spectacle of lynching, which itself is a horrible uh, crime and, a, and a, a, a form of racial terror that was used across mm-hmm. the United States, not only against primarily but not only against african-americans um i think another reason though is um and and this is maybe the certain part in part the fault of legal scholars like me that when we look back at jim crow through the lens of brown v board of education right the harm of jim crow is seen as segregation right mm-hmm. the separation of the races and that's sort of the brown story, is that we went from separate schools mm-hmm. and drinking fountains and, and so on to a more integrated, or at least not legally separated, world. Um, that focus on segregation really um, puts to the side the... Scale of violence mm. that kept Jim Crow in place and and kept the exclusion of African Americans from public life, from voting, and from getting ahead economically. Um, mm-hmm. it, it it was always violence that behind that, right behind that, and and I think that violence has become obscured in our memory because it's an ugly part of our past, mm. and I think it's it's somewhat more sanitized to see it in terms of
0: separate but equal. And, and that may even answer my next question for you. You write that it's important to put the Pulse shooting in historical context and I, sh- I should note, you came out with this, uh, this short piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, just a couple of days after that uh, shooting and after uh, there was, you know, the, the initial wave of people talking about this as the worst uh, mass uh, killing, mass shooting in American history. Uh, but why do you think it's important to put the Pulse shooting into this Historical context. Obviously, that doesn't uh, make it any less horrible. But uh, w- what is the context right, that you sir, see sir, this
2: in? Sure, sir, I, I What I, I don't mean it to be, a, you know, a contest mm-hmm. of. I mean, th- there's no quantifying, you know, this kind of horror, and and certainly no desire to minimize the terror of mm-hmm. what just happened. Um, I. Also, don't I, I do think there is an, a number of people have made the distinction. Well, these are indiv- you know these are shootings by an individual. The Pulse shooting was one individual. What I'm talking about are mass um, uh, are conducted were conducted by a mass of people, By groups by I mobs and, and so forth. Right, they're, they're yeah. by a mob, by a group, and yeah. I, of course, I think that's an important distinction. Um, I I think that if you know, if at the time that mob of people had had access to military-grade weapons uh, the way Omar Mateen did, we'd yeah. be talking about thousands of people dead. So I certainly don't mean to say it to minimize the importance mm-hmm. of our contemporary access to weapons that that I don't believe um, individuals should have access to. But I do think it's really important to put this in historical context so that we recognize that these hatred-inspired shootings um, that target a group of people, whether it's lesbian and gay people, African Americans, a number of people wrote back to me and responded. Don't forget the massacre at Wounded Knee, which of course is mm-hmm. exactly you know right. That's another um, case where uh, the, the uh, soldiers opened fire on men, women, and children. Um, and, and killed uh, hundreds of civilians, um, that that tradition, un- unfortunately of, of racial terror, um, has gone hand in hand with our gun culture, and so that we can't, I think push this aside and say, "Oh, this is radical Islamic terrorism." Mm-hmm this is something coming from outside the United States. I think it is part of our history, and we need to understand it in the context of our history. He may have, you know, Mateen may have been um, uh, inspired by the Islamic State, but he was an American, and I think it's, it is part of American history.
0: Well, you're right. I mean, we we have, obviously, we've had gun violence and hatred in this nation for many years. One could even uh, make the case that our nation has been built on it in no small part. Uh, but obviously, uh, to some extent, it has become worse because of the, uh, the proliferation of guns and high-tech weaponry uh, that allows really mass destruction by a single person in such a short time. And, uh, you know, the, the millions that have been spent to misinform the public about guns uh, by the uh, weapons industry lobbyists at the NRA and so forth. But, yeah, you write in your, uh, in closing, in your piece, uh, Ariella Gross, that. Um, uh, that that labeling the Orlando shooter as quote an Islamic terrorist is to forget that he was also an American. Does the rush, as you see it, uh, uh, Arie- Ariella, uh, to tie to focus on his ties to Muslim extremism, is that on purpose? Is that does that also help to uh, avoid some of the responsibility that we all share as Americans? I've been arguing, hey, it's not the uh, uh, you know, Muslim extremism. It's the guns, stupid. Uh, <laughs> right, is is is, right. is this about I mean, avoiding I, that? I think,
2: yeah, I I I do think um, there is uh, there has been um, a, a, a real distinction between the way we treat anything that we can find some link to, um, you know, ISIS, no matter how remote, you know, but. but any link that can be found as a way to um, push, distance ourselves, mm-hmm. right, from uh, from what happened. Um, I think there's been an, a tremendous outpouring. I mean, one thing that's been really um, quite moving, I think, in the response to the tragedy has been the outpouring of support for the LGBT community, for the Puerto Rican LGBT community, mm-hmm. from people saying, we recognize that that it's a particular group of people who are targeted here on the basis of their identity, and we stand with you, right? And I think um, that been, there's been a really strong effort of people to say, um, this you know, he may have called out, um, at the very end to say, Oh, I admire ISIS, but this is someone who went to a gay nightclub on Latino night to kill people. And, um, and then I think that, that there's also a groundswell of public support for, to say enough is enough. And as far as guns are concerned, that many of these, um, of these incidents would not be possible on this scale without uh, the avail such easy availability of um, mm-hmm. of really military grade weaponry.
0: Yeah, I gotta. Um, say,
2: I... And and when you think about you know, and that's where I think the comparison to something like uh, Tulsa or East St. Louis is instructive, right? For example, in Tulsa, there were actually um airplanes people flew private planes overhead to drop fireballs on homes um when and in in both cities when as the the mm-hmm. inhabitants fled their homes they were shot that could only happen with state support at, or at the very least turning mm-hmm. turning away from you right mm-hmm. to have such a well coordinated uh, community effort to uh, to massacre whereas today one individual in a very short period of time can accomplish the same thing without all of that community and uh, and and public support except to the extent that we turn our eyes away from it and and don't respond Regulation.
0: You're, you're right. I mean, i, I got to admit, a, a chill sort of ran down my spine here when you said, imagine, uh, had they had the type of weaponry we had now, had we had the type of lethal weapons that we have now, uh, back in 1917 and in East St. Louis in 1921. Right, those were well, shotguns. So, yeah.
2: They were using shotguns.
0: I, I can't even imagine the amount of carnage that there would have been, and uh, it, it's it's a it's it's a reminder. Yeah, there may have been uh, uh, killings of of more people, uh, you know, at once, uh, but the lethality of where we are now, where we have become as a nation, and what it is that it seems like a a big portion of our population, at least of our uh, at least of our government, you know, continues to argue for. Uh, <laughs> It's tough to make an argument for it. Uh, It's it's really incredible. Uh, Ariella Gross, uh, please check out her uh, her piece at Wall Street Journal entitled Orlando Mass Shooting, not deadliest in American history. She is, of course, a professor of law and history at the University of Southern California and the author of many books, amongst them, What Blood Won't Tell, A History of Race on Trial in America. You can also follow her on the Twitters at Ariella Gross. Uh, Ariella, really appreciate you joining us uh, to have this conversation today. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you. You too. I'll tell you what, I am particularly struck, Desi Doyen, by her comments about how much worse uh, those racial slaughters would have been in the, Previous century, uh, had we had the same type of easy access to what we have to these military-grade uh, assault weapons that we have today?
1: I know that kind of that that kind of blew my mind just thinking about that concept. If they had had assault-style weapons available during the You know, the the racial purges that were going on in the South.
0: And by the way, they did have a type of they had Tommy tommy guns. They had machine guns, you know, prior to uh, those uh, being banned. But you couldn't walk in off the street and basically afford them. They weren't affordable. They weren't uh, gun shops on every corner like we have here today. Uh, I can only imagine how much worse it would have been. Well, I guess I don't have to imagine because we're beginning to see much of it now. All right, uh, quick break, and we're back with our 700th episode of the Green News Report. Buckle up and turn on your air conditioning. I'm Brad. This is your Bradcast. (laughs) Melting for Desi Doyen today, more than we have in months.
1: Oh, boy, howdy, yes. Boy,
0: howdy out here in, uh, in Southern California. Hotter than hell. <laughs> Although I don't know if that's true. Well, find out eventually, I suppose. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Here with Desi Doyan and our, uh, an, not an anniversary of sorts, but our 700th Green News Report. When we started the Green News Report, Desi Doyen, uh, how would you say things were different Politically than they are now. And you have only about 30 seconds to respond. (laughs)
1: Well, of course, George Bush administration had just finished, which had uh, basically decimated any hope of climate change legislation, any hope of action on climate change. So when we started, it was really, think about a month after President Obama was inaugurated. So, high hopes, uh, some great things have been accomplished since then, but God knows not nearly enough.
0: Well, there was actually legislation in Congress that was being taken seriously because you had Democrats in, in control of both houses at the time. And and it was, was it not, Democrats who actually stopped, uh, was the Waxman-Markey bill? Right. It was Senate Majority
1: Leader Harry Reid refused to let it come up for a vote in the Senate. And that's basically how it ended up just sort of dying on the vine.
0: So thanks, Harry Reid, who was at the time Democratic Majority Leader. Yes, we could have had, uh, uh, you know, legislation long ago to curb greenhouse uh, gases and everything else. But uh, so it's both the Republicans and George Bush and then the Democrats in in the U.S. Senate. Thanks, guys, for all your terrible work. And we're sweating out here because of it. And now it's not it. Now it doesn't even come up in either house. That's over. That chance is gone anyway. Let's get to it. Seven years and seven hundred episodes later, our latest Green News Report.
1: Forty million people are under a heat warning as temperatures soar above 120 degrees. Heat wave shatters temperature records across the Southwest, and California's snowpack melts away.
2: Election days come and go.
1: Bernie Sanders wants you to fight climate change. Plus,
0: rising temperatures could mean. No more glaciers at Glacier National Park.
1: President Obama warns climate change is coming for your national parks.
0: All of those warnings and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And
1: I'm Desi Doyen. Stand
0: by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Well,
1: we have become more dependent on foreign uh, energy.
0: Hey, what do you know? Trump surrogates know as much about energy as Trump does. This is your 700th Green News Report. I'm
1: gonna soak up the sun.
0: Okay, Dizzy Doyen, am I crazy or is it hot out here? Oh,
1: it is California? most certainly very hot out here.
0: And it seems a perfect time uh, to shatter these records because this is, as I said, our 700th Green News Report. For 700 episodes, Desi Doyen, you have been warning America and the world about exactly what it seems that we are facing today here in, uh, in Southern California with temperatures smashing records.
1: Yes, and you've been bringing the snark. But onto to the story. <laughs> I knew
0: I did something here.
1: A record intense heat wave gripping the southwest has shattered multiple heat records and brought extreme fire danger across California, New Mexico, and Arizona. In Arizona, claiming at least four lives. Now, typically the young and elderly are most at risk from heat waves, but these deaths were all hikers in their 20s. It was so hot outside that... Airlines diverted flights away from Phoenix due to the excessive heat, according to ABC News.
0: Remarkably, even airplanes have been affected. Airlines delaying some flights Sunday because at 120 degrees, the air is so thin it creates lift problems for planes.
1: Numerous studies have now shown that man-made global warming is already increasing the risk of such extreme heat events now five times more likely to occur. The record heat wave is also creating extremely hazardous conditions for firefighters battling hundreds of wildfires across nine states in the West amid triple-digit temperatures. One small spot of good news, firefighters at a fast-growing wildfire near Santa Barbara, California, have succeeded so far in preventing the fire from reaching an ExxonMobil oil refinery. Well,
0: that's good.
1: Unfortunately, the U.S. Drought Monitor has issued another ominous report for California's record five-year drought. The intense El Nino this past winter did replenish many of northern California's reservoirs. But the latest assessment shows that it barely dented Southern California's water supplies and worse, thanks to an unusually warm spring, nearly all of California's mountain snowpack has now melted and is now at just 6% of normal. Mm. In politics, Senator Bernie Sanders, in an online speech to supporters last week, called on them to engage and step up in the fight against climate change as part of his political revolution. From committing to public service by running for office, he also urged them to focus on the Decades-long issues of solving the nation's climate, energy, and infrastructure problems.
0: As we combat climate change and transform our energy system away from fossil fuels, we need scientists and engineers and entrepreneurs who will help us make energy efficiency, solar energy, wind energy, geothermal, and other tel- developing technologies as efficient and cost-effective as possible.
1: Right now, it looks like if there is going to be any focus on climate change in the general election campaign, it will be over basic acceptance of science rather than the policy discussion of what to do about it that we really need to have and that Americans need to hear. And
0: more surrogates of Donald Trump telling people that energy costs more now than it did when Obama came to office. Which and is not true. Which is not true, and that we're more reliant on foreign energy than before he came to office.
1: Which is also not true. Correct. Finally, this August marks the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service, and President Obama made the case for protecting our public lands and our national parks during a family trip to Yosemite National Park over the weekend, where he said the biggest challenge will be protecting these treasures from climate change.
0: Yosemite's largest glacier, once a mile wide, is now almost gone. We're also seeing longer, more expensive, more dangerous wildfire seasons, and fires are raging across the west right now. Rising temperatures could mean no more glaciers at Glacier National Park. And that's not the America I want to pass on to the next generation. That's not the legacy I want. I think any of us want
2: to leave
1: behind. Obama also said that our parks are huge economic engines. Every $1 invested in managing the public lands delivers $10 to local economies, 6 million jobs in the $650 billion outdoor recreation industry.
0: Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, for this, your 700th Green News Report. (laughs) You too. Amazing. Uh, For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, please stop by our website at greennews.bradblog.com. And my thanks to those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us do what we do here now for 700 episodes over, mm, I think, eight years. I'm Brad Friedman. And
1: I'm Desi Doyan. And
0: this has been your Green News Report. going to on Desi Doyen.
1: You too, thanks for 700 episodes so far
0: so so far, you know what else was different when we started this 700 episodes ago, It, it occurs to me at that time uh, there, there, I mean there's very few people talking about uh, climate change now but at that time nobody was talking about it in the in the corporate media on right. the public airwaves so it is thanks to uh, all of our listeners all of our affiliate partners out there who have been playing the green news report our listeners who have been helping us to stay on the air with donations and so forth uh, we couldn't have done it without you so thank you for that and uh, it's really it's a different atmosphere no pun intended <laughs> a, d- a different atmosphere now, uh, when it comes to reporting on this stuff. It, back then, it does uh, even I was more skeptical than I have. You have educated me over all of these years. You
1: have been, I hope, well educated. I, I tried. Been. I definitely tried, and and things have gone. We have seen great strides. We've seen Tesla. We've seen solar panels and renewable energy drop precipitously in price just since we began. So innovation happens. Shift happens.
0: Shift happens, and, and of course you are putting uh, coal out of business with your uh, one-woman war on coal. Me, personally, yes. Congratulations. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. If you missed any part of today's program, you can download it uh, for free. You can listen and download all of them for free at bradblog.com. And over at iTunes, where I hope you will give us a good review, uh, both the Bradcast and Green News Report. Just go over to iTunes, search for Brad Friedman. You'll find both of them, and you can uh, run up the score for us. Makes it easier for everyone else to find it. Thank you for doing that. My thanks also to my guest today, Ariella J. Gross of USC. And you can find and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.